values, and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. All right, welcome back, everybody. Man, there it is. I'm Barry Markson in for Broomhead. Thanks for joining us here on KTAR. Coming up at 9.30, uh, Chuck Coughlin's going to join us uh, from High Ground. He's a Republican consultant. And uh, he's also one of the leaders of a new organization uh, that is going to try to create open primaries in Arizona, a way for us to vote in the primaries uh, that will be different and get us uh, potentially some different types of candidates. We'll talk to Chuck Coughlin after the news at 9.30. Right now, uh, I don't know if you're aware of this. Uh, I certainly wasn't. Um, apparently, companies are having... a employers are having a major problem that when they, first of all, it's hard to hire people, right? Uh, unemployment is very low. I think it's 3.6% or less. And they're having a real problem finding employees. I mean, that's, we know that that's been going on for quite a while. And what they're learning, though, is when they do get somebody to take the job, so they get someone to apply, they actually hire somebody to come in, a huge percentage of new employees quit after the first 90 days or within the first 90 days. So they get a new employee. They spend all this time and money and effort to get somebody to come in. They interview. They do all the stuff. They hire the person they want. And then the person comes, and within 90 days, they, they leave. And it's it's unbelievably uh, – I mean, I've, I've seen this before. I've seen it in my own firm. It, it's difficult uh, because you do put a lot of time and effort into getting people and to training them, and, and, and then <laughs> they take off. So what you're it, – it's, it's fascinating. So the, what the studies have shown is that if you can get an employee to stay with the company for – Three months for 90 days, the likelihood that they are, that they become a long term employee uh, is incredible. It goes up substantially. So that if, if, a, if an employee starts with you and stays for three months, it's most likely they'll be there a long time. And they define that as at least one year, one year or longer. And I, I found that very interesting. I mean, obviously, part of this is the ability to find another job, right? So if you get hired at a place and you don't like it, you're like, all right, I don't need this. And you leave and you go find yourself another job. Or maybe you do that immediately. Um, I always wonder how, you know, it's so odd to me. Uh, you know, usually one of the first things I look at when I'm hiring somebody is has this person moved around a lot because that's not what you want. Uh, but people have explanations for things. And these days, when you're that desperate, uh, employers will keep hiring people. That's right. They'll keep hiring people who aren't there for very long. But what companies are doing now is very interesting. They're offering bonuses, like we'd call it a signing uh, a sign uh, in bonus. Uh, you, you, if you say you'll take the job, we'll give you money. But they're giving it to you after 90 days, if you've stayed for 90 days. Uh, and companies are given $1,000. They're giving hundreds of dollars. Uh, and then they're doing, I think this is even more important, they're doing things to make sure the employees like working there. So they're doing things. Chipotle is interesting. Chipotle says, uh, they number one, they really do a good job of trying to explain the benefits and why you want to work here and why this is a good thing. And they're focusing on, and this is important, they're focusing on consistent scheduling. So they're letting you have some some stability in your life and consistency. You're working with the same people. Uh, I think people want that almost more than the money. They can go get another job, uh, but it can be more than that. So you're seeing this from uh, not just retailers, not just restaurants, but uh, warehouse work and really across the board, across different industries, uh, companies are taking steps to try to make sure that new hires stay on. And it's just it's just such a different time, uh, I think, not not just an employee, employer-employee relationships, but I think in how people work. Um, it's it's as we talked about this a moment ago. It's so it's so difficult right now to find uh, anybody. I'm an attorney. I work in a law firm. I can't tell you how difficult it is for us to find lawyers, and 
this wasn't going on pre-pandemic. Uh, it, it is now. And I, I ask this all the time. Where did all the lawyers go? I, I, you know, we used to say there's too many lawyers and now there's literally there's not enough. It's an odd situation. And I know this is it's it's across industries. It's it's all different fields. And it, we're, companies are struggling. And I think it's just been a change uh, in how people view work and how they view their life. I think we used to have, you know, we call it the work ethic. I don't know if you want to call it the Protestant work ethic, whatever it is. Uh, but we have a work ethic in this country where people work. You make money. You want to put money away to retire, to help your kids go to school, whatever it may be. And that seems to have been replaced by many, uh, especially I think in younger generations, uh, by I want to enjoy my life. I want to do something fulfilling. I want to feel good about what I do. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's probably smarter <laughs> than, than how I grew up, right? That uh, hard work isn't everything, that there should be a lot more uh, to life. And I think we've done a better job of that as a country over the last several decades anyway. But um, it, it has, it, it did get out of control and still is for a lot of people with hard work and hour, you know, working nights, working weekends, not being there for family and not enjoying yourself. It's something I always talk to. I talk to everybody about this. You have to find joy in everything you do, not every minute, every day, but you have to find joy in things. Uh, I used to say this all the time when I travel, and I don't have to travel for work very often, but when I do, and it'll often take me to places that you wouldn't normally go on a vacation. I'll give you an example. I had to go to Cleveland one time to see to see a client. And when I'm anytime I travel like that, I say, okay, let me know what's a great restaurant for me to go to, a great barbecue place for me to go to. What's what's the place in Cleveland that I want to I want to go visit because that's the place people say to go. I went and saw the uh, the uh, football hall of fame. Uh, that's for me, that makes the trip cool, right? So I'm doing, I'm there, it's a tough drive, or it's a tough, uh, tri- a lot of travel, it's a pain, um, you're doing what you have to do, but you find something good to do while you're there. I think we all need to find that. But what I think we're finding is a lot of people who are saying, if I'm not working for a place that's fulfilling, a place that's helping society or doing whatever I feel is important, if they're asking me to work harder than I want to work, we're seeing that, right, with the, the what they call it the quiet quitting, people who are basically working way less than they have to uh, or less than they should. Uh, just enough to stay hired and stay, keep getting paid, but not really doing the job with any care or thought. Um, that's changed. And I don't know in the long term what this means, not just for our economy, but our country. Uh, if, if most people don't want to work, it's going to be difficult. And uh, we're seeing this now with, uh, with employers saying even when we are able to hire somebody, they quit. <laughs> in the first in the first three months. So we're going to keep dealing with this. Uh, companies are trying to get people on board and working. We'll see what happens. Maybe when jobs become harder to find, if the unemployment rate goes up a bit, maybe that'll change the attitude. I don't know. Uh, but there's an awful lot of folks who seem to work for a little bit, save a little money, and then say, I'm going to take some time off and travel or go do something else. It's an interesting time uh, uh, for sure. And part of that, we're going to talk about this later, part of that is the government increasing uh, the amount of people who are available for food stamps, who are available for uh, Medicaid, uh, things that, you know, maybe you don't need to work. Uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit later as well. Coming up next, though, uh, this is uh, this is fascinating to me. There's an organization out there. Uh, they're filing lawsuits against the government to stop uh, what they call white bigotry. Uh, we'll talk about the rhetoric, but really some of these lawsuits, they're winning. And we'll talk about why uh, when the Biden administration is putting things in place and separating us by race. We're going to talk about that next. I'm Barry Marks, and in for Broomhead, it's KTAR.
strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. All right, welcome back, everybody. Barry Marks it in for Broomhead. Thanks for being with us. Uh, Broomhead back tomorrow morning. And uh, I, I got to tell you, this this is interesting. Um, there is a group out there now. You know there's all these organizations. They... Uh, <laughs> they they're they're always looking for ways to make money. And it's so much of this political stuff and cultural war stuff. It's all you know. We all get they they do the same thing all the time, and we fall for it every time. They try to get us riled up, and then they ask for money, and we send them money. I'm shocked at how many people send money to politicians and causes and all these things. But there's an organization of lawyers, and they're they're doing things from a conservative side, and it, you can agree or disagree with some of the stuff. But what they're what they're saying is, uh, and this is the underlying part. I don't like how they phrase this. But they're they're trying to fight what they're calling white bigotry, which I think sounds silly. But what they're fighting is what they file lawsuits about is when the Biden administration creates laws or or, or executive orders that um, specifically provide benefits to people based on race. And as you might imagine, it's never it's never white people. Uh, it's always it's who the Biden administration says has been uh, disadvantaged over long periods of time, things like that. So I'll give you an example. One is uh, one is uh, there was a big bill, a big thing that provided money coming out of covid uh, for black farmers. It provided support uh, for black uh, for literally that's what it was called for farmers who were black and minority farmers. um Heard that that they were going to do that. It was about a four billion dollar uh, act uh, for uh, for black farmers, for minority farmers, and uh, some black farmers and minority farmers. They went out, and started started spending that money. They they thought it was coming, so they went and bought new equipment. They did things just like all of us would do if we found out that was going to happen. Um, but this group filed a lawsuit against it, and the court agreed with them and issued an order saying, "No, the government can't do this," and the government backed off and canceled the program. And uh, they've done this with several different government programs, and I have to tell you, I, I agree with this. It, it's a, it's a. I'm not, I'm not here to say that uh, minority farmers or, or African American farmers uh, perhaps haven't been discriminated against in the past. Maybe they weren't. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm going to guess they have been because I think that happens all the time in this country. So it's not to say that it didn't happen. But if you're going to have the government offer a program, if you think farmers needed help coming out of COVID and that the government was going to provide some assistance, it should be for everybody. Based Based on need, not based on skin color, based on need. And I, I do agree with that. And we see this all the time with schools and in other things. Um, and this organization, they're stepping up and filing these lawsuits, and they're losing a bunch of them. Some of them are silly, I have to tell you. They do some, a lot of culture war stuff. They do a lot of things with LGBTQ stuff. And But on, the, on these, where the government is trying to provide substantial benefits, but only to certain, only people of certain color, uh, I, I do think that's wrong. Uh, here's another one. After COVID, uh, or during COVID, we know how difficult COVID COVID was uh, on our restaurants, right? I mean, I know a lot of restaurateurs in town. It was incredible. They had to close. It was incredibly ridiculous. And and just the expense, even when they're opening, of the additional cleaning facilities and everything they had to do to keep things clean and keep people happy so that they would come in, it was incredibly expensive. And for the longest time, the restaurant industry uh, was going to the government saying, hey, we need help. Restaurants are closing. Businesses are closing. Jobs are being lost. And eventually they did it. But when they did it... Um, they one of the things they put in was that some of this money was only going to go uh, to to minority restaurant owners. It was only going to go to uh, restaurant owners uh, of of people of color, and. I have to tell you something. It's not right. Even some of the people I read this this article about it. Even some of the minority restaurant owners they fl- came out and flat out said this isn't something having to do with color. A lot of restaurants are struggling right now, and that's exactly right. 
if you, it was the right thing to do to offer assistance to restaurants who were just beaten down during COVID. Uh, I was a big supporter of, we, we gave out a lot of government money during COVID. It was way too much. You want to talk about why Arizona and California and all these states have a huge surplus now coming out of COVID? It's because the federal government gave so much money just handed over so much trillions of dollars that it's just ridiculous. And we just made everybody flush. It was crazy. And it was the same thing, frankly, with these COVID checks. We were sending out COVID relief money uh, to everybody, whether or not you lost your job. Now, did, did a lot of people lose their job? Yeah. Unemployment went up. Let's say it was 10 percent. Ninety percent of people were still working. Ninety percent of people didn't make less money. They were making the same amount of money. And frankly, it was costing them less to live because we didn't leave our house. (laughs) I mean, I I know I wasn't shopping. I wasn't going out. You save money. Why did we have to send checks to all those people? But the folks who were truly hurt, the people who lost their jobs, people who worked in industries that were really affected by COVID, restaurant industry for sure was negatively affected by COVID. Those folks, if we're going to give government assistance to anybody, those folks should get it. But it shouldn't be based on the color of the owner's skin. It should be based on the need. If you owned a restaurant, if you tried to keep your employees uh, uh, employed, if you did everything you could to stay open, if you feed, if you fed the community or fed your employees, those are the people that should get help. And instead, this administration does does things focused on the color of your skin. And that's for me, that's just wrong. And there's no need for it. It's just not necessary. Give the give the assistance to everybody. And the folks of color will also get the assistance. Don't keep it from them. But why is it that there's a special giant uh, pile of money, $29 billion for minority restaurant owners? It's ridiculous. Put that out available to everybody who needs it. So this organization, they're they're doing that, and they're winning a few of these lawsuits and keeping. And when they win, the government backs down because they know it's ridiculous. And the courts are are doing this. It's not just Trump judges who are finding this. The courts are looking at these and saying, uh, yeah, you can't just pick out and who gets benefits based on the color of their skin. That's that's the opposite of what we're, we want to do, right? We want to provide opportunity for everybody, not give ben- not give advantage because of skin color. That's supposedly what we've been doing all along. We want to stop that. All right, coming up. I'm excited about this. Chuck Coughlin's going to join us. He's the president and CEO of uh, High Ground, a Republican, a, a political consulting organization. Uh, but he's also a leader of, a, of an organization called Save Democracy Arizona, uh, who wants to change the primary process in Arizona. We're going to talk to you about what he wants to do and how it would affect our elections. That's next. Jeff Munn standing by in the KTR News Center. And then more of the Mike Broomhead Show. I'm Barry Markson. Values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. All right, welcome back, everybody. Barry Markson in for Broomhead. Thanks for being with me. You can follow me on Twitter at Barry Markson One. And uh, excited to have with us right now Chuck Coughlin. He's the president uh, and CEO of uh, of High Ground, uh, the political consulting firm. And Chuck, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Barry. It's great to talk to you this morning. You as well. And I want to have you on for for a different reason than, than breaking down the uh, the election and, and all the uh, the the, uh, the lawsuits and everything this morning. But uh, you're you're part of an organization called uh, Save Democracy AZ dot com, and and this is uh, this is an organization, I, as I understand it, that's devoted to creating an open primary system in Arizona. And I wanted to chat with you about that. What does that mean for Arizona, and and, and how does how would that change what we do now? Well, it's it's simple. It's let voters decide. It's put voters above party. It's allowing anybody to run who wants to run 
and then let the voters decide. You know, right now, if you're like Sinem, for instance, Sinem is going to have to collect nearly 42,000 signatures as an independent to be on the ballot, whereas the partisan candidate's only going to collect $7,000 or 7,000 signatures. You know, just even the playing field. Allow everybody and then allow the electorate to vote. I mean, you hear all these conversations about, we heard it throughout the general election about, oh, the candidate's not tacking to the middle. You're like, let them run who they are. Let voters decide who they are. Let the voters decide who they want to choose. All right. So the system now is uh, the political parties control the primary, even though they're paid for by the state, which is kind of interesting. So so the political party decides who is who is able to run in the primary. And then they hold the primary election, which is paid for by the state. And then the winner of that primary election then goes on and serves as the party's nominee for the position under under this plan. If I'm again, correct me if I'm wrong under this plan. Everybody could run. So if there are four Democrats and five Republicans and two independents and one libertarian that all want to run for governor, they all enter the primary equally. Same number of signatures, just wide open. And then there's a primary vote and the top two vote getters, regardless of party, the top two vote getters go on to the general election. That would be one way to do it. That's that's the top two uh, format, whereas regardless of party, the top two nominees then run off in the general. There's other ways to do that as well. We're exploring those right now. We haven't decided. But the other one would be, which is popular, just adopted in Alaska. Maine uses it. About 52 other jurisdictions in the country actually use it. And that's called a open primary and then a ranked choice voting system that would allow um, the top four or five vote getters from that primary to run in the general election. And then voters would rank them. You have a first vote, a second vote, a third vote and a fourth vote. And then the ballots would be tabulated. And if the first place candidate gets over 50 percent of the vote, bam, that's a winner. If they don't, then the fourth place candidate drops out and the fourth place. Everybody voted for the fourth place candidate. Their second choice gets reallocated. And so then that gets reallocated and retabulated. And it's an instant runoff. You'll know right away then who wins because then then it it literally creates a majority candidate, a a candidate that represents a majority of the entire electorate, which is our problem in governing today is that, you know, you have these highly partisan primaries that encourage a candidate to run hard to the left or hard to the right. And then they do this dance, you know, to try and come to the middle. Whereas this system, let people run who they are. And then, you know, you're encouraging actually choice. You're encouraging competition. It's all the things that are greatly American and that allow people then to actually govern the way they run. The biggest change, if we were adopted the RCV system, would be you get rid of all of the negative campaign. Because if you and I are very running against each other, I'm not going to dump on you. I'm going to talk about me. I'm going to sell myself to the voters because maybe people are going to vote for Barry second or first. And I want to be Barry's second choice. So it forces the narrative into a more 
problem-solving, problem-oriented, getting actually things done narratives. And it, so, and the result when when they've done this in these fifty-two jurisdictions, and I, I recall this happening in the New York City mayoral race uh, this last year. Mm-hmm. Um, the result generally is uh, that a more uh, reasonable, centrist, less extreme candidates are the ones that get elected. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it's absolutely fair to say. Okay. Because the system does not ex- reward extremism. The system rewards consensus building and problem solving. It's what we need in America to actually, you know, solve our problem, our immigration problems, electing people who elect the who represent the actual electorate. Chuck Coughlin is uh, joining us. He's the president and CEO of High Ground and also with uh, Save Democracy AZ.com. You can check out that website uh, to see about this, uh, how do we save our democracy and different open primary systems. So, so Chuck, what is the organization doing? You're saying you're still exploring, you're still investigating. Is, Is this something that eventually has to go on the ballot for Arizona voters? How does this work? It does. It's a constitutional amendment. It would require us to collect signatures to put it before the voters in 24, in the 24 cycle. Our current plan is what we're doing is we're out. We have uh, over 1,000, 1,500 people already signed up, um, and we're trying to encourage people to sign up to so they can pers- participate in this discussion, so they can lend their ear, lend their voice, and talk to us about what it is that they'd like to see, understand, and then we would we'll create this collaborative process on what, how to move forward. Um, we'll test ballot language. Um, we're going to be doing focus groups. We're going, you know, it's hard, Barry. This is not an easy yeah. thing to do because we're always ingrained into this by bi- this partisan system. I'm a Democrat. I'm a Republican, and I have to vote that way. And so it's a hard. I'm not. T- it's probably the hardest thing I've ever done in politics is try to compel people to look at this as the reasonable option of what it will do to preserve our democracy. Chuck Coughlin is with us from High Ground. We're talking about SaveDemocracyAZ.com, a, a potentially a new open primary system here in Arizona. And, and it's true right now. I mean, the, the primaries are controlled entirely by the by the parties. And what we end up with in these primaries is a small group of party members picking our our general election candidates, and it, they end up on both ends and being much more extreme uh, than they should be. And really, I don't think representative uh, of of the state. Correct. I mean, you look at the recent Republican primary here in Arizona, um, 36% of the electorate participates, both on the left and the right, cut that in half. So you got, you know, 17, 18% of the partisan primary participating. Those are your most partisan voters because independents aren't going to go and say, oh, you know, let me participate in that. It doesn't appeal to me. There's not a market there of listening to candidates who want to appeal to me. So this small minority of voters chooses who our nominee is going to be. Right. None of the Republican candidates got over, like Abe Hamada. He got 33% of the primary electorate in a very competitive field. Um, and, you know, then he's the nominee. And so you're like, well, that's not representative of the Republican Party. Why? 
you know, why, why aren't we getting better nominees? Why aren't we creating better choices for the electorate? You know, our so, current system, I, I joke, is, it's, it's, uh, it's like a Soviet grocery store. You walk in and you got aisle A and aisle B, and all the rest of the aisles are empty. Yeah. And you're like, but I got to choose. So, Chuck, like, I've, I've got to go to break, but let me just ask you very quickly. The parties aren't going to support this, right? They're going to fight it. Oh, they're going to fight it hard. Yeah, <laughs> this is not this is not going to be welcome in the. Uh, right. There's no welcome mat here. Yeah, so it's going to require the people coming out and voting. Is this something you anticipate putting uh, something on the ballot in 2024? Yeah, we're looking at putting a ballot measure on the ballot in 24. Start collecting signatures later this year, maybe as early as this fall. Um, and and it's a constitutional amendment, so we'll need close to half a million signatures wow. to put it on the ballot. We'll have to survive legal challenges and then put it on the ballot. And yeah. the irony is we're going to have a stalking horse in Kirsten Cinema on the ballot, which is actually representative of what we're trying yeah, to do. That's exactly right. All right. You can check it out yourself at save, uh, excuse me, save democracy, az.com. That's save democracy, az.com. Chuck Coughlin, thanks for spending some time with us. Gary, you're the best. Thanks so much. All right. I love this idea, by the way. Put, put me on that website. I think this is a great idea, and it's actually really good for the state. Coming up, uh, we're going to talk about uh, uh, some statues. You know about the whole thing about statues? Well, in Philadelphia, there was a statue of Christopher Columbus. You're never going to guess what the city did because people were upset and, uh, and, and where we are now. I'm going to tell you next. I'm Barry Markson, and for Broomhead, it's KTAR. Values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. All right, welcome back, everybody. I'm Barry Markson, in for Broomhead. Thanks for being here. Mike's back uh, in the big chair tomorrow. And uh, coming up at 10.05, right after the news with Jeff Munn, uh, I'm excited about this. Garrett Archer is going to join us, the data analyst from our friends at uh, ABC 15. He did uh, he did an analysis of the voting in this last election, uh, and he can he's going to tell us why Kerry Lake lost, why Mark Fincham lost, Blake Masters. He's going to tell us why based on the data. So not an opinion. It's going to be the data. What happened? Uh, and we'll break that down. I will give you a little spoiler alert. It wasn't because the election was rigged. Sorry. It wasn't. But we're going to give you the data. The data is going to tell you what happened, and that's coming up at 10.05 with Garrett Archer. Uh, this is this is uh, one of these things that's just incredible to me. Uh, in Philadelphia, there is a uh, there's a statue there of uh, Christopher Columbus. Now, I, I know he's become, uh, I guess it's a lightning rod. I mean, it's it's such an amazing thing. I, I You know, maybe I'm just, uh, I've been I've been <laughs> around too long. I mean, I remember Columbus Day in school, and we learned about all that, and the, that he discovered, you know, discovered America. And I know he didn't really discover America. I get all that. I understand. I understand. Understand. So we have a statue there. Oh my goodness! And so people are so upset. They're so triggered by the statue of Christopher Columbus from the 1400s. Um, they they put a box over the statue. They literally made a giant plywood box and slid it over the top of the statue so that you couldn't see him. Because goodness gracious. What could happen to you if you see Christopher? I mean, it, the whole thing is just amazing to me. It's just amazing to me. So they put a box over it, and this people took the case to court. Um, they say he's a symbol of white supremacy. I, I mean, a symbol of it's from the 1400s. Uh, it's just incredible to me. Um, and again, I'm not here to defend everything the man did. I, I don't. I'm not going to defend things that happened in the 1400s. Uh, yes, there were absolutely bad things that happened then. Yes, it, yes, that's true. Uh, 
<laughs> anyway, so they go to court and the judge says, you know, I, I'm assuming after he stopped laughing that they put a box over it, that the city of Philadelphia put a box over the statute. Uh, the judge says uh, no, and he orders the box's removal, saying that if the city disagrees with the message of the statue, uh, then it can add its own plaque with what it wants to convey. Wouldn't that be an interesting idea? So here's the guy that discovered, uh, you know, for, for the Europeans, he discovered uh, the Americas. And and here's, you can even put us, so he's got a plaque that says that, and another plaque that says all the Bad things he did, and how this may have changed things for Native Americans and and others and other things. That's fine, but that's who this guy is. He didn't fight America. He did, I, it's incredible to me. So good for the judge. Uh, I, I was uh, very impressed with this judge. That that's the stand that he took. That's the order. That a stand. I'm sorry. That's how he interpreted what was going on. And he said, "You don't put a plywood box over a statue." I mean, think about this for a second. So this was so upsetting. It was in the court, but people were so upset they had to put a they had to build a giant box to put over the top of this statue rather than <laughs> rather than let people see it because. God Gosh forbid they see this thing uh, while the while the case is being decided. So the judge orders that the the box be removed. It's now been removed. Uh, it's been a long running dispute in the city of Philadelphia. It's uh, it's the friends of Marconi Plaza where this where the statute stands. Uh, it dates back. Think about this for a second. It dates back to 1876. It was presented to the city by Italian Americans in their community uh, to commemorate the nation's centennial. That was the 100th anniversary of our country, um, and. And that's that's when it's been there. There's a deep Italian heritage in the city. The Italians were proud uh, of what Columbus had done back then. And and that's why the statue's there. Now, I'm going to tell you, I, I differentiate this from the Confederate statues. And I'm going to tell you why. Because the last Confederate statue that was in Richmond, Virginia, was removed on Monday. Um, and the rest of it... Um, uh, it was apparently some guy named Ambrose Hill. He was a Confederate lieutenant general, uh, and he was. Uh, they're they're going to transfer it uh, to a cemetery. That's where they're going to take that statue now. And this is different for me because these were people who, and we can we can argue about a lot of stuff. And I know you know a lot of people are going. The, the history changed here. The South was very successful in changing American history uh, throughout the early 1900s and into the 1950s by putting these statues up and changing history. Uh, but these were people who literally fought against our country. I mean, we would call them, in many cases, we'd call them traitors now. I mean, that's what this was. And they fought to keep slavery alive. This wasn't some esoteric uh, Christopher Columbus. He's out, you know, exploring, and he finds what he thought was a brand new world. And, and, and then the bad things happened from there, because that's what happened when powers came to be in, in, in new countries or new lands. Then, yes. But this is much different uh, than the Confederate statues, where we were literally honoring people who, who fought against the United States and committed treason against the United States. It just seems odd to me. So, for me, these are two totally different things. Coming up, uh, Jeff Munn is going to be in the KTR News Center. He's going to bring us an update on everything going on around the state of Arizona and the country. And then Garrett Archer, uh, he's a data analyst with ABC 15. Uh, you may know him as a data guru on, on Twitter. He's going to join us and talk about an article he wrote. He did the analysis of how uh, what happened in this election and how uh, did Katie Hobbs win? How did the Democrats win uh, in, a, in a time when it looks like so many Republicans uh, voted? That's going to come up next right after the news. Stay with us. I'm Barry Markson. It's KTAR.